you listening to us hanging out uh on the internet this is the second half of the program we are in overtime uh we are off the radio right now although we are on unclaimed mysteries radio this will be on friday morning from nine to ten uh but that's an internet radio program so we're off of the we're off the terrestrial airways right now we appreciate you hanging out with us. And so first, let's talk about this situation with the sick days at uh, these big rail carriers. Lots of good news there. And then we'll get into the situation, um, into some of the updates on the East Palestine derailment. Um, so just yesterday, just yesterday, Norfolk Southern became the third rail company to guarantee paid sick days to workers. Bernie Sanders said the grassroots trade union movement um, provided uh, paid sick days to rail uh, to provide paid sick days to rail workers is gaining momentum. Norfolk Southern became the third rail company to guarantee paid sick days to workers. Now is the time for all rail companies to follow suit and substantially improve rail safety. The agreement, which the company announced Wednesday, provides sick time to roughly 3,000 unionized track maintenance workers. The deal allows employees to take four paid sick days a year. Wow. And removes, four. Ugh, and removes a stipulation which worker contracts in worker contracts that required them to give their supervisors 48-hour notice before taking personal days. Um, you know, you just... 48 hours before Adam whenever you get sick you just you just have to tell them oh I'm gonna be I'm not sick right now not sick right now but 48 hours from now I'm not gonna be able to work so just letting you know boss man that's what they had to do before right and and if there's you know anything you've picked up over the last couple of weeks in this rail disaster uh, boy don't you really feel confident knowing there's only two people on a train mm. that's miles long and yeah. two, both of them may be deathly ill. Right. They may be running a 102 degree fever. Yeah. They could be whacked out of their mind on all kinds of medications that uh, they had to take because they couldn't stay home sick. Boy, doesn't that make you feel just really safe and secure mm -hmm. in the American heartland? 
That follows uh, from the week before the Union Pacific Corporation announcing a similar agreement with two of its unions that represent 2,100 rail workers to provide them with multiple, day, multiple days of paid sick leave, a key goal in recent labor talks. In a statement on Monday, the Brotherhood of Railway Carmen shared that the agreement, which takes effect on April the 1st, will cover up to four days of paid sick leave for Union Pacific employees in the union, also allowing them to convert their personal leave days for sick leave. So that's, you know, up to four days still. Right, yeah. I mean, it's obviously too little, too late. That yeah. said, I want to really applaud Railway Workers United. Indeed. And them in particular, of mm -hmm. all of the rail unions, obviously, but I think the RWU caucus has really just shifted the narrative. I think they have done a good job in you know, engaging with the public, even engaging with shareholders mm -hmm. and, and other folks who have some sort of influence here. Uh, you know, when Congress and the White House prevented the rail strike back uh, before Christmas, they didn't stop fighting for sick leave. They did not stop right. the, the fight for paid leave that they so deserve. And so, you know, as too little, too late as this is, you know, four days, okay, great. But it wouldn't be happening if they hadn't, if they had not been organizing like they have, right? There is, there has been some shifts, and that is through the power of their collective action and collective organizing. Um, and I, I really, you know, applaud their advocacy. There's a lot more left to be done. But the fact that they were able to get now three major carriers to budge and offer some concessions on paid sick leave, I think is is definitely a victory. That's a victory. Uh, especially knowing that the rail carriers have such leverage that the United States federal government would be on their side. Um, I think that's huge uh, because you, you are taking on some of the most powerful companies in the world, backed by arguably the most powerful state in the world. So, uh, really, I, I applaud the workers for continuing this fight, uh, and I do applaud those few in, in D.C. who have stuck by those workers during this fight, including Senator Bernie Sanders. Yeah, absolutely. According to Bloomberg News, Union Pacific's agreement with uh, the Brotherhood of Railway Carmen and the National Conference of Firemen and Oilers represents uh, approximately 8% of its total workforce. Right. So, workforce. We're, so we're seeing, you know, it's they're chipping away at it bit right. by bit, craft by craft, carrier by carrier. Um, but, <laughs> you know, this could have easily been avoided this could have this could easily be fixed right now with the stroke of a pen yeah and the thing and and the thing to, one thing to note about that at least is that uh it doesn't it didn't have to be this way none of this none of this would be necessary had obama not excluded the rails from his executive order in 2015 mandating federal contractors uh, provide employees with at least seven days of paid sick leave at least seven days, which is still not an excessive amount. Um, you know, I, I think, I think, frankly, it would be reasonable for federal contractors, you know, I think that with our tax money, we ought to be leading the charge on 
benefits for workers, pay for workers, safety for workers. Lift the standards. Lifting the standards so that because there are only so many people who are federal contractors, who are federal employees, and but if the federal government were to raise those standards, private employers have to compete with public sector employment, with federal contractor employment. And so you could raise the standards that way even without implementing these you know authoritarian whatever laws minimum wage laws or, or anything like this and so um i think that the there should be more guaranteed pay sick days than seven but obama did that in 2015 and he specifically excluded the rails even right. though rail companies are are federal contractors i mean there's not even a discussion there right. they're federal contractors but because they do work for the federal government and so they ought to under this under this executive order they ought to have to give their workers 7 days of paid sick leave but obama excluded them from this and so now here we are downstream of this, and we've had this huge disaster. We have 17 rail derailments, uh, uh, train derailments, uh, 1,700 train derailments every year. And, of course, having for, you know, the sick days is not the only thing. There's just this consortium of issues, but that's, the sick days is really what the workers have kind of rallied around as the, as the symbol of, the broader issues that they're having in their industry. And the idea that Obama would allow this to continue in 2015 when it didn't have to, and the idea that Biden is still allows it in, in 2023, and the idea that Biden pushed through a rail contract that workers voted down without even this minimum, when every single other federal contractor has to do this. Every single other federal contractor and yet the rails get this special carve out right and it's such a special carve out that biden broke a strike over it like it's just it it's bizarre it's totally bizarre yeah and i mean unnecessary and, and the thing is all these other federal contractors that do have to abide by this executive order um they're they're still trucking, right? They're still mm. profitable, and in fact, I would imagine most of those federal contractors would love to have the profit shares that uh, the rail carriers have had in recent years. I'm sure they would love to have those kind of margins. Um, so it's not as if the rail industry like can't afford it, you know. Right. Whatever the rationale may have been at the time. You know, we all know the reality is that the rail industry was successful in lobbying against it. I mean, and that's what happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mentioned Senator Sanders earlier. I know that that Bernie has Bernie wrote a letter to the White House a couple of months ago uh, asking President Biden to fix that omission, to revise the executive order and to include the rail carriers under that order. And again, that would solve the issue. Um, you know, I. I guess, you know, there's a discussion there to be had about, you know, this is what happens when we rely on, you know, politicians and, and the federal government to uh, fix these issues for us. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at the end of the day, there is a, a clear method to resolve a very, very dire issue for thousands and thousands and thousands of workers on an important industry, uh, one of the most important industries in our country. It could easily be done. President Biden, if he wanted to recover some of his reputation among 
rail workers and working people more broadly, why not? Why not right. come right out, <clears throat> sign the executive order, declare, you know what? I don't care what these railroad barons have said. We are going to guarantee all of their workers have at least seven days of paid sick leave. It would be a huge win for them politically. It would be a huge material benefit for these workers and their families. It would change their lives and improve their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and theoretically, you can campaign on that, right? That's a deliverable right. to people. Right. And in nearly every corner of the country, right? There are rails all mm -hmm. over this country. Uh, and even in places that have, you know, minimal union presence, there right. are folks who work on the rails. Yeah. There are railroad union members everywhere. So I, I just, it's, I, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I, I think it is, um, it's very poor politics. But again, you know, that assumes that the goal, the end they goal, have the same goal as us, is, right. is to win elections through helping people. Mm. And I think, um, you know, there's decades of, of data and evidence to point to the to the contrary, that that is not what they're trying to do. Um, and, and my personal opinion would be they would rather lose elections than actually challenge capital and challenge the ruling oligarchy in any meaningful way. That's my thoughts. But, you know, maybe I'm a wild conspiracist. Yeah. Um. So we're going to get into the, the latest updates on on the train derailment in East Palestine. But um, Infinite Content in the chat said that he's on hold. So let's go ahead and take that call, and then we'll get to... Sure. We'll, uh, well give me just a sec. Palestine. I did not change our settings uh -oh. to uh, make sure I can bring on this caller. So yep. give me about 30 seconds here to make yeah. sure we can get Infinite Content on the air. Appreciate the discussion in the chat. Um <clears throat> Who knew it only took a major disaster for rail workers to get days off? We should have them more often. Pittsburgh dude 87 says, uh, yeah, it'd be great if we could just have that instead, uh, have that without the major disaster. That would be right. I mean, I, yeah, I get the point though. That's, it yeah. is sad that it takes something like that to spur action. Um, All right, y'all. Um, I believe I should be able to bring infinite content on the air. Let me uh, see if he is on. All right. Can you hear us? Hey, Adam and Jacob. How are y'all? Hey, infinite content from Philly. Doing good. How are you? I've had a week, and I'm a little... <laughs> Uh, distressed about a mass shooting that happened in Philly uh, that seemed like it was tar more, it seems more devious than what happened mm -hmm. than the, just a regular shooting in Philly. Because uh, I haven't even heard anything about this. Was, well, like seven people got shot uh, on Thursday evening in Philly in a neighborhood, but all the shooters, they got out and shot in different directions, which made me think. This was, they weren't looking for somebody. They were doing this to be like a form of like uh, domestic terrorism. Wow. Uh, and with all these, it's about this, um, these hate marches that are going on in, uh, in the country, it just made me feel like this had Buffalo, New York energy. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. said, I want to point out something that a couple of things that you might not um, be aware of. I think one of the reasons that Mayor Pete has been slow to 
address the things in East Palestine is because I believe McKenzie was one of um, I had Norfolk Southern for a client. I think is they're that right. The case? And if they were the ones that pushed against uh, getting those bricks installed, then he might have had he might not be um, on this whole situation with clean hands. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, his time at McKinsey could be relevant. Like I've been looking, but McKinsey keeps their client list um, uh, uh, hidden. But I, that's where I, I just—you ever get that feeling, like something right about this? That's why I'm still. And on top of that, uh, what do folks over say? They were going to pay the town like what fifty thousand dollars? Twenty-five thousand, and they did. Oh, like when after the derailment in East Palestine, 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 um, someone wanted to just give the account like fifty thousand dollars to be done with it. Yeah, yeah, it was twenty-five thousand. It wasn't even fifty; it was twenty-five thousand. Just mm. oh, I'm sorry, twenty-five thousand. <laughs> so benevolent and magnanimous, right? Uh, EP, and they did all that stuff before the EPA got there. Mm-hmm. EPA said no, 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 no. We're going to clean this up, and you're paying. Norfolk Southern is on the hook for all of this. Right, right. And if they refuse to pay, they're going to pay trouble damages. So I, they, they've tried to get off on the cheap. And uh, on top of that, there's another conflict where the EPA is allegedly taking, like, the um, safety and water readings from Norfolk Southern's people. Do you About the water safety, did you all hear about this? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I heard that too. <laughs> that apparently, Are you like, kidding me? like the um, the EPA told <clears throat> folks in the town that the water was safe, and they were basing that on Norfolk Southern's water testing. That's my understanding. I mean, mm-hmm. so that's yeah, I agree with you. That is just oh, that is just that's very egregious. I mean, to. I, I would be very, very concerned if I lived in that community and I found that out. Right. <clears throat> when I saw that, I, 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 think, I was thinking, is, what kind of raggedy-ass bullshit is this? Right, right. Because um, uh, I saw somebody take a picture of the uh, on the creek spot there, and you can still see the um, rainbow sheen on the water. I'm like, and they mm-hmm. said that it wasn't just 3,500 like, fish that are dead. It's like, all the animals within like a five mile radius of that um, uh, burn uh, are dead, which makes me think Norfolk Southern was trans- um, was uh, currying something way more dangerous than what they alleged because they got in there and tried to burn everything real quick. That's mm-hmm. that was destruction of evidence. Yeah, well, and you you mentioned the fish. There's this from from the BBC News. Ohio toxic train crash killed nearly forty five thousand animals that we know of. Right, that we know of. <sighs> That's crazy. And um, the governor of Pennsylvania, because East Palestine's like a mile from uh, Pennsylvania border, he's filing um, listed them on a criminal uh, charge. Uh, I'm like, good. They need to have no peace, no mercy. And I I feel this story kind of really sits in my mind because it's a train that literally runs behind my house. Mm-hmm. So, and I think, I don't know if it's Norfolk Southern or CSX that runs the trains. I'm like, if one of those trains derails, 
is bad enough it happened in a rural community like East Palestine or a small town. Imagine if that, something like that happened in Philly or Detroit or L.A. Right. 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 Talk right. about hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. That's going to be a cancer alley. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> that's going to be worse than Lucky now, uh, 15, 20, 30 years down the line. I promise you. Yeah. yeah. No, I, no I'm doubt. sorry. I'm, uh, and you all were up on the comments. You also have a story about the um, McDonald's workers because you all reported on it. Yeah. But yeah. I'm like, I need to tell you, I'm uh, following you all's lead. I'm going to tell you why I'm mad today. All right, All right. Sounds, sounds good. Ooh, ooh. The, uh, I just am um, beyond incensed at the incessant greed of capitalism and this corporate greed that's just screw jobbing us across the board. Because there's no reason, except for greed, that we're paying these higher prices for uh, all commodities. Uh, and, and they can't say, oh, well, it's, um, we're having issues uh, trans, uh, like growing things, transporting things. Lemon is still growing in the grass. COVID ain't affected um, uh, any agriculture. It has affected agricultural staff, but it's not mm-hmm. affected agriculture. Because uh, the lemons are still growing, the oranges are still growing. Why are they 15, 20% higher than they were three years ago? Right, just mm-hmm. like the eggs. Right, right. But now the eggs... That's another part of corporate greed. Uh, I think it was some uh, case of bird flu that broke out in some of these um, in some of these chicken farms, and they like have killed millions of chickens. So that's going to it'll be a couple year. Uh, it'll be a minute for that um, to get uh, back up to speed. But we're, there's also yeah, yeah. other major backlogs. I I work as a pharmacy tech, and there are a lot of drugs that are on manufacturer back order. Uh, brother, you don't have to tell me. I, I have been missing one of my medications all week. Um, and Did you medication? Yes, and um, it's been hard. We're missing, um, we're, we're missing out on a lot some antibiotics. We were missing out on uh, Tamiflu. We were missing out on, um, like, Moxone for kids, Tylenol, Ibuprofen. Mm-hmm. This is why I don't agree with everything that uh, every politician says, but when Elizabeth Warren said we need to uh, start making um, our own pharmaceuticals yeah, at, yeah. The better, at the government level, we need to do it mm-hmm. because these companies are just uh, – they're allowed to – they want to uh, – like um, privatize the profit and socialize the um, cost. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that. It's not something we mentioned on the show, but there are medication shortages affecting people all over the country. Uh, Like I said, I've been dealing with that personally. I know other people in my life have been dealing with that. You know, I was telling Jacob this morning or yesterday, I'm thinking about all the kids in Mm. school who are having to go to school every day, but can't get the medication that they need. You know, God bless their parents and their teachers who are, you know, trying to help them get through this. But, uh, you know, this is the richest country in the history of the world. Um, Adam, Adam, it's a rolling domino effect because I've been seeing medicines be out. I'm like, okay, um, this medicine has been on manufacturer back order nationwide for a month. I'm going to advise you right now because I can't tell you what to get, but I need to tell your doctor 
to consider switching to a different medication. So they're switching to the next medication, and that's causing a backlog, trying to cause a backlog in that, and so on and so on. And I'm like, and I like, I'm trying to be sympathetic and help people out so they can uh, have a solution to their problem, but. It's out of your hands. It's out of right. you know, it's out of our hands as as customers. Out of your hands as as in the pharmacy employees. I mean, it's yeah, it's a real shame. the 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 richest country on planet Earth, and we can't even insure supplies of medication for people when their doctors prescribe it to them. And you mentioned the the children's medications. Yeah, my daughter had a, a cold a, a few weeks ago, and it took three different stores to find children's uh motrin or children's tylenol whichever the one i was looking for it it was it was out and you know there were signs on the on the shelf about you can only buy one i mean it was it's just it's just wild uh to think that you have people all over this country in a country of such great wealth that can't even get the medication they need to to function from day to day it's just very sad yeah and like i said and you, I see this like the stress and strain in um, parents and guardians' eyes about them. Like you have a sick kid, uh, you don't do damn near anything that you have to to get it, and they're like snapping at me. I'm like, it, I, I can't do anything. Yeah, like yeah. we don't have any in the back. Well, the back is not some magic place where right, 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 But like, and I'm like. Things are starting to come up to speed, but still not enough. I'm like, it, it still might be doing irreparable harm because mm-hmm. if you don't get a, a, like, particularly with antibiotics, if you don't take care of that uh, infection at a certain point, then you're going to have to move to second line and third line drugs, which are way more expensive and way and even less in supply. Right, right, right. right. And can cause um, definite material harm to people. So... Like I said, I, I'm. I've just been. Like I said, I've had a week. Yeah, yeah. man, and no, brother, I appreciate, I appreciate you. Yeah, I appreciate you calling. I appreciate you uh, bringing those issues up, uh, and uh, appreciate what you're doing as a pharmacy tech. I know that struggle is real, um, because I, I mean, the last few times I've been in the pharmacy, I've seen people crying in the line because Jeez. they can't get their medication. Um, you know. I, I know that, you know, you're you're dealing with the brunt of a problem that's way bigger than any of us can solve. Um, and so, yeah. And just for a little consolation for you all, you all might only have to deal with one insurance. I got to deal with all the insurance. Mm-hmm. All right, fellas. I'm going to get off the line and, we, uh, and I'll call in next week. All right. Thanks, all right, brother. Appreciate you. Yeah, so let's, let's talk. Let's dig into this some more, this East Palestine stuff. The... Um, Oh, and well, before oh, yeah. before you mention that, I, I did want to say that um, Infinite Content brought up conflicts of interest. Um, the Lever News actually had a good article mm. out about Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. Uh, after Norfolk Southern support, DeWine says no disaster in East Palestine mm. by Matthew Cunningham Cook. So that's another one to check out if you're kind of digging into these conflicts of interest here. Yeah. Yeah, and you know this is really a story where your your brain is just gonna get broken if you only look at the world through like 
your partisan political allegiances. Right. Like if it's you just gonna... want to hear the conservative take or right. the liberal take, the Repu- you know, the Republican or Democrat take, um, you're 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 missing out a lot. Yeah. It's just gonna totally break your you're gonna have no reference with which to actually understand what's going on because the reality of the situation is that both both sides, you know, even though really it's it's like one side in, in more more instances than not, but both parties are at fault here. And if you can't understand that, you're just you're not going to understand the problem, and then therefore you're not really going to be able to understand what needs to happen to go forward. And you know, we're seeing this. I I saw this on on conservative radio last week. Yaffe was ta- Yaffe was trying to make the case, it did not do it very convincingly that. Uh, lack of regulation did not uh, cause this. That actually, no, this is not. This is this is this is just a freak accident, and there's really not much to worry about. And it's you know there's uh, there's nothing that the government can do. It's just really out of our hands. You know, this is just nature. This well, is the world. Such and bullshit. It, it's just so silly. It's really really silly. And uh, and then on we the can other drop side, bombs right. on countries halfway across the planet. Supposedly, we can target an individual in some village somewhere and kill him, but not his goats. Some, you know, we're supposed to trust that the government can do that. Yeah. But you can't prevent rail disasters in 2023. Yeah. And then on the other side, you've got Buttigieg trying to make this seem like this is all Trump's fault. And like he has no, like his hands are tied. It's so bizarre. But before, and we're going to play some of those clips from Buttigieg, but let's, let's talk about, but let's set the stage first because we got this preliminary NTSB report. Uh, NTSB is the um, National Transportation Safety Board, NTSB. They had a preliminary report on the accident that found that this was 100% preventable and no evidence that the crew did anything wrong. So this is a really, really clear report um, and I think that's very important because in situations like this, it's very common to have like individual workers involved, mm-hmm. thrown under the bus, thrown right. thrown under the track, so to speak, uh, and and you know they try to push blame as if it is just the individuals on that particular train or you know whatever the incident may be. So I I really am glad that the the NTSB put that out there in clear language. Yes. Now. Um, now Dale is Dale last week on the on his show with me and and I was on his show talking about this and and you can find we clipped it and we put it on our channel because there was, that was something that we hadn't discussed in that way yet and so you know we thought our audience might enjoy it but he tried to make the case that actually no this rule the rule wouldn't have helped and that's fair enough because the rule that he's talking about is the Obama era regulation that said that high hazard trains have to have ECP brakes, electronically controlled pneumatic brakes. And it is true in a sense that that rule would not have stopped this and would not have helped that. Why is that? Why is it that the Obama era rule wouldn't have stopped this? Because the Obama era rule would not have applied to this train. The Obama-era regulations would not have classified this train as high hazard and thus not subject to the regulation. And so from the ensuing disaster, we can see, obviously, this is a high hazard train, okay? 
you know, just in two, you know, what the idea that you could have, the idea that you could have a category for trains that is titled high hazard and that this train is not included in it shows the farsity of the regulation. Okay. And before when the rule was being developed, there was a push to include more trains to broaden the definition of high hazards that might've actually included this train that Norfolk Southern really pushed back against. And so the rule was limited. The rule was limited to car to trains that are even more dangerous than this one. Okay. So Obama said, look, if you've got a train that's this level of dangerous, which is, which is more dangerous than this East Palestine train, right? Think about that, how dangerous those cars have to be. You have to have electronically controlled pneumatic brakes. And what those do is they stop every car on the train at the same time. Instead of what happens right now, where they've got these like 1800s, uh, like technology that is derivative of 1800s era technology that is air brakes that stops the train from the front first. And we can understand how if you've got a train going this way, uh, going, going down the track and the front stops and the back isn't being stopped at the same time, well, that's how these derailments happen, right? That's how this kind of stuff happens. And so electronically controlled pneumatic brakes, ECP brakes, really decrease the likelihood of train derailments. They're very good. And um, the Obama era regulation did not apply to this train. And the Trump administration pulled it back. So think about that for a second. The Trump administration looked at this rule and said, oh, you're a bomb train. Like you're just literally a bomb train running across our country. It's fine for you to have air brakes. It's fine for you not to have these ECP brakes. I mean, just think about that for a second. How, how crazy this is. And so Dale was trying to, I don't, well, he probably wasn't trying. He was just misunderstanding the thing because like I said, People, when you are only looking at this through partisan politics, you're, it's just going to break your brain. You're not going to be able to understand what's going on. And Dale clearly does not understand what's going on. He doesn't understand what's going on here. And so uh, the Railroad Workers uh, United put out a statement and uh, co-chair Gabe Christensen said, railroad, railroad workers experience firsthand every day the dangers inherent in this style of railroading. It has impacted their safety, health, state of mind, and lives on and off the job. Railroad Workers United General Secretary Jason Doring adds, every day we go to work, we have serious concerns about preventing accidents like the one that occurred in Ohio. As locomotive engineers, conductors, signal maintainers, car inspectors, track workers, dispatchers, machinists, and electricians, we experience the reality that our jobs are becoming increasingly dangerous due to insufficient staffing, inadequate maintenance, and a lack of oversight and inspection. We recognize that limits on train lengths and weights are necessary to prevent catastrophic derailments. RWU demands immediate action by government regulatory agencies and Congress to rein in Class 1 railroads. This action must ensure sufficient staffing to do the job properly, efficiently, and safely with all trains operating with a minimum of a two-person crew. Train length and weight must be capped at a reasonable length to mitigate the increased likelihood of breakdowns, train separations, and derailments. Adequate and proper maintenance and inspections of locomotives and train rails 
and rail cars, tracks and signals, wayside detectors, and other infrastructure must be implemented. Ample training and time off without the harassment of draconian attendance policies must also be standardized. And this is totally doable. This is all totally doable. This is all within... A lot of this is frankly within the executive authority, but it's also obviously within the authority of Congress because they just implemented a contract that did not, they just implemented a contract on the rail workers and on the rail carriers, technically. Technically, this is also an imposition by Congress on the rail carriers. It's not the rail carriers saying, oh, this is, an this is our contract. And, you know, this is just Congress. What happened in December was Congress creating a contract which was really pulled out but it didn't have to be it didn't have to be taken from the companies but that's what happened they could have done anything differently that they wanted because it's just a law that they passed they could have done something differently but instead they didn't and this is the result of it and so um conservatives their brains are just broken they have no idea how to understand that but also these partisan weirdos like Pete Buttigieg, have no idea how to understand what's going on here either. So let's take a look at this clip from Buttigieg in East Palestine. The day after Trump, by the way, the day after Trump, just the optics of that are insane. How is it that... It's, how do you let that happen? Right. You you mean allow Trump to visit the, the town before either Pete or Biden? Yeah. How do you let that happen? It's Biden insane. still hasn't shown up, and uh, my understanding is he has no plans to, but Pete did finally show up afterwards, um, after Trump was there handing out Big Macs. Yeah, so let's uh, let, let's take this, um, yeah, let, let's take this at, uh, um, and we will, uh, uh, we're going to listen to this clip from Pete Buttigieg, where he is, he's really kind of subtweeting Trump. And so we'll, we'll play this clip and then we'll react to it. If the same people who want to come here and play political games are the same people who sided with industry again and again and again and watered down rail regulations again and again and again, I want to see where they've had an actual change of heart or not. And if they had a change of heart, I'll take them at their word and we can get work done. Yeah. Hmm. yeah and so, you know, this is fair enough if you are doing stuff. And there's just not enough evidence to say that we're actually making progress here with the Biden administration, with the Pete Buttigieg Transportation Department. It's absurd. Right. I mean, if you that statement would uh, would irritate me a little bit less if before this disaster, the administration had already proposed reversing Trump's deregulation. Right. Uh if the administration has had already proposed adding additional censors that could have prevented this disaster, if they were already working towards enforcing more regulations, beefing up the regulations in place, um, that would be different. You know, it, it would be different if if that was already in place, but it's not, right? They, it's from as far as we can tell, there's been absolutely nothing done. Uh, by the administration in terms of rail safety and rail regulations until this disaster. And, you know, it's day late, dollar short on this disaster so far. Um, now, to Infinite Content's point in his call earlier, you know, the EPA has put out some strong statements and, you know, says they're going to make Norfolk Southern pay for it. Uh, you know, we'll see. 
We'll mm-hmm. see. I mean, color me a little bit skeptical, honestly. Yeah. Um, you know, but I guess, again, that's better late than never. Glad to see that they're, they're you know, taking that posture now. But, you know, for Mayor P to call on Trump and, and, and the Republicans to, you know, join him. Right. You haven't convinced your own party yet, brother. right? Like, yeah, well, and so it, let, has let's Biden play this. put out a statement yet? Right. So let, let's play this where he gets more explicit. A reporter says basically what I said. You know, you're basically kind of subtweeting Trump. What's your message to him? And and makes him state it explicitly. So let's play that. Yes. You mentioned a national political figure who's decided to get involved. It sounds like you're talking about Trump. And then you said, I need your help. How can he help? Well, one thing he could do is uh, uh, express support for reversing the deregulation uh, that uh, happened on his watch. I heard him say he had nothing to do with it, even though it was in his administration. Uh, so if he had nothing to do with it, and uh, they did it in his administration against his will, uh, maybe he could come out and say that uh, uh, that uh, he supports us moving in a different direction. Uh, we're not afraid to own our policies when it comes to raising the bar on regulation. And uh, I've got to think that uh, uh, him indicating that this is uh, something that everybody, no matter how much you disagree, on politics and presidential campaigns can get behind. Higher fines, tougher uh, uh, regulations on safety, Congress untying our hands on breaking rules, all the other things that go with that. Uh, That'd be a nice thing for him to do. Yeah, so do it. Right. It's like I was telling you last night. You know, I do understand the politics behind it. And in fact, I don't even necessarily disagree with that approach. But it rings hollow when you're not doing anything, when you're not doing anything, when your own party needs to follow the advice you're giving to Trump. Right. Uh, I don't see a groundswell of, you know, regulatory zeal coming from the Biden administration or the Democrats in Congress. Right. If if it's out there, I have missed it. But. You can't sit around, do you know, twiddle your thumbs for a couple years, then show up after the big disaster late and yeah. act as if, you know, well, this happened because of Trump and, you know, Trump could really do us a solid and, and call for uh, better regulations and, and call for things to get better. Of course, he could. He could. And you know what? He'll probably say it. Right. He'll say the exact opposite probably 20 minutes later. But, yeah, they probably can get him to go on the record to say something like that or to that effect. Um, but, yeah, that's that's what bothers me. Is Yeah, well, Adam, you know, look, let's cut let's cut him a break because he's he's I mean, he's got a reason why he hasn't done anything yet. And let's and he, he explains it here in this press conference. So let's let's play this clip. But also Norfolk Southern and the other freight rail companies need to stop fighting us every time we try to do a regulation in order to hold them accountable and their other railroad companies accountable for their safety record. And what we've seen is industry goes to Washington and they get their way. They got their way on the ECP rule. They got their way on a Christmas tree of regulatory changes that the last administration made on its way out the door in December of 2020. I think they're getting their way on the fines being too low. I'm sorry, but 
uh, if the biggest fine we can charge on a violation is $250,000 or, or less, and that's an egregious hazmat violation to get somebody killed, that is not enough for a multi-billion dollar company. Well, we're acting on it with the authorities we have and calling on members of Congress to act on it, on it with the authorities they have, and the railroads not to wait on us to require them to do the right thing on their own. Yeah, well, see, there you go, Adam. I mean, he can't do anything because the companies aren't letting him hold them accountable. So, you know, I mean, what can you do, right? Yeah, and, you know, I'm glad Infinite Content brought up the McKinsey connection. I yes. mean, because this is a gentleman who was literally paid significant sums of money to help companies figure out how to beat regulations. Right. To help companies figure out how to do exactly what he's describing, to go to Washington and win. And that happened under Democrats and Republicans. Yeah. The transportation industry, the rail industry has been deregulated over the course of more than five decades now. Right. We can go back to Jimmy Carter's administration. So it's just really it's just really hollow. Uh yeah, you're right, Pete. The companies are going to fight you on regulations. That's how <laughs> this works. Uh, I'm glad you've stumbled upon that realization uh, that all of us who are more than like five years old already knew. Mm. Um, and which you damn well know because you've been on the other side of it right. your whole career. Um, yeah, I, I, I am very just... And I know we're about to get to this. The the other piece of this here is that the Democratic circles and some of the liberal press has gone on a new track where the problem is everyone's being unfair to Pete. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's the tragedy. Right, is that poor Pete is getting blamed for all of these things out of his control. Um, he's being blamed for the former administration's deregulation and all this and that. And, you know, I just think that's so absurd. The man is, is a cabinet secretary. You've been a cabinet secretary since the beginning of the administration. Yeah. You knew, you knew the supposed Christmas gift in December, 2020, you knew all about it, right? Mm-hmm. It happened right before you got there. Had to have been first on your list of what, you know, uh, of your onboarding process. Uh, you certainly knew what you were doing by busting the rail strike or the potential rail strike this winter. Right. I, seems to me like Norfolk Southern and the rest of the carriers won big. They won big in part because of Pete yep. and Marty Walsh and Joe Biden and the Democrats and Republicans in Congress. So, yeah, I, I'm, I don't want to hear any whining coming from uh, the Pete Buttigieg camp that he's being, you know, unfairly maligned or, you know, his his clear ambitions that he has may be dampered by mm-hmm. this disaster and, and the pushback he's getting. I mean, why? I know this is just optics, but, yeah, why is it? that Donald Trump rolled his fat ass up there to hand out Big Macs before you got there. It's Why? Insane. Why? Right. You couldn't send the you couldn't send the transportation secretary there 
Yeah, and and you know the, the thing Bi- is, you know, Biden had to be in Ukraine supposedly. I'm not but even going to touch that. He had two weeks before that, right? Yeah, two or three weeks before that, that absolutely. He done the thing. And and you know the the thing, like part of me wants to say, obviously this is theater. Like nothing is nothing materially changes from Biden being there physically. Okay, we understand that and we recognize that, especially when you know right-wing freaks talk about how Biden hasn't visited the border. Like, what the hell do you want him to do at the border? Like, that doesn't even mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. And so, you know, there's a there's a part of me that wants to recognize that and wants to have that as the forward-facing thing. But also, I, I th- the thing that I've come to is the forward-facing thing is that, okay, maybe we can accept that it's theater, but that's your, that's your, go- that's your freaking job is theater. You're supposed to be, you know, yeah. That's your whole, that's half of your thing is being theater for the right message, right? You can have plays that have a good message and that encourage people to act and that do things that are, that are real, but that's, so you got to engage in the theater and he's not doing that. Trump's doing that and Biden's not doing that. It's crazy. But the Buttigieg world is very much in this whole thing about oh poor Buttigieg poor Buttigieg and he even enlisted the official Department of Transportation Twitter account in this campaign of poor Buttigieg poor Department of Transportation um and uh former guest Julia Rock at the Lever News broke that down a little bit and so I wanted to play that um for you the Department of Transportation started like fighting with the Lever's Twitter account on Twitter we adhere to the highest standards of journalistic ethics. And so we, of course, reached out to the Department of Transportation for comment on the story, incorporated their comment. And the Transportation Department started attacking our story on Twitter as false uh, without providing any um, you know, evidence that the story was false or what was false about the story. You know, didn't ask for any corrections on the story, which would would sort of be uh, the typical way a government agency might uh, claim that uh, th- there's something false in the story. And then was like responding to Twitter accounts that had responded to our story that had like nine followers, uh, sort of calling them out for, m- you know, misunderstanding the Department of Transportation's response to the accident. I- I've-, I've never really seen anything like this from a uh, federal agency's Twitter account before. And for some reason, I don't know why she didn't include this in, in the thing. Maybe she wants her podcast to be more professional than the Department of Transportation was being on Twitter. But that account with nine followers, the username was Cupcake Boner. Um, so <laughs> Cupcake Boner holding the Department of Transportation accountable. Wow. Very funny. <laughs> yeah, that that's bizarre to me. Uh, like, come on now. Uh, you got more to deal with right now than arguing with uh, Cupcake Boner 69 on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, that seems bizarre. Uh, but on that note, I, I really, really am um, appreciative of Julia Rock and all of the mm-hmm. folks at the Lever News. The Lever News has really been all over this. Yeah, uh, they have put out some quality, quality journalism. They are digging into the backstories. They're digging into, you know, what are the conflict conflicts of interest here both with the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this uh, pretty new article about Governor DeWine, right? I mean, this guy has received significant sums of money from Norfolk, mm-hmm. Norfolk Southern. 
they have helped his career tremendously. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I really, I give credit to the Lever News. I think they have helped to shift the narrative around this and help to, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, the DOT is doing damage control and that's right. in part because of their reporting. Yeah. And Ryan, and, um, uh, you know, and some people have mentioned this on Twitter and on, on some other YouTube shows, but this is, you know, the response to this has really been driven by in you know, independent media or like not mainstream media on the left and the right, because the main, you know, Fox News hasn't really picked this up. Um, CNN, MSNBC, that they're all of these, the big, you know, the big alphabet channels are, are really kind of late to the game. And it's been, you know, outlets like the Lever News doing the real reporting where like you, if you actually want to figure out what's going on, you want to go to the Lever, right? Right. Uh, but also you've got, you know, right wing weirdos on, on, radio trying to convince people that it's like Antifa or something or that it's, but they're talking about it. And, um, and then some people on, on more like Democrat partisan type stuff talking about this too. So, you know, that's interesting about the media landscape that independent media, not mainstream media has been able to create this reaction. I uh, got a super chat from Strom McCallum in the chat saying uh, parties of the proprietary class doing proprietary class politics and engaging in sparring club kayfabe. And that's, you know, that kayfabe is really a great way to describe what's been going on here. Yeah, so. that absolutely. Um, I think there's a reason why, um, there's a crossover in politics and professional wrestling mm. sometimes. Mm -hmm. Even uh, right here in Huntsville, Alabama. Yeah, for sure. For sure. We have a couple of quick stories, and then we're going to get to Feb February labor history. Just a, a quick hit on this. Uh, Marty Walsh is leaving the pos position of labor secretary for a cushy job as the head of the National Hockey League Players Association. Just bizarre. Absolutely bizarre, uh, but that leaves open the job of the head labor law enforcer and Lauren Kaori Gurley broke in the Washington Post that the White House is vetting top labor official Julie Sue and the president of the country's largest flight attendants union, Sarah Nelson, to lead the Department of Labor after Labor Secretary Marsh, uh, Marty Walsh steps down in March. Three people familiar with the matter said on Friday. Leaders of the organized labor movement have also recommended the outgoing executive director of the National Football League's union, Damaris Dom Smith, as a potential candidate to really? fill the position. wonder who those leaders are. Yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know a ton about uh, Damaris Smith and the NFLPA you know, record that he has there. Um, that That is kind of – it's interesting, if nothing else, that you got the labor secretary – heading off to the NHL Players Union while the former head of the NFL Players Union mm -hmm. is, a, is a top candidate. You know, that's interesting. But um, And I, I don't know a ton about Julie Sue. I, I look forward to kind of digging into her record a little bit more. Yeah, Julie Sue was the head of the California Department of Labor. And by all accounts that I've seen, she was pretty good. Uh, she has been endorsed for the position by several unions. Um, I mean, Marty Walsh was as well, though. Right. You know, Marty true. Walsh, um, there was, of course, critique and, and concerns from the left about Marty Walsh. But more or less, you know, kind of the union establishment uh, was pretty keen on him. Yeah. And um, Noam Scheiber mentions, though, because that that quote from The Washington Post that leaders of the organized labor movement have also recommended the outgoing executive director. Da, 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 da. 
Noam Scheiber, uh, the labor reporter for the New York Times, said that, you know, if you read between the lines here of the Washington Post piece about the shortlist, he says, does the established labor movement consider Sarah Nelson to be too militant for the job? So that's that's an interesting, you know, reading the tea leaves thing there, because I, I hadn't thought about that immediately when I read the piece, but I guess, you know, you read the piece and, the, you know, there's a reason... There, like these things don't happen for no reason. You don't, people who leak have an agenda. Whenever you see something in the paper, whenever you see something in the news, sources say, sources say, sources say, those sources have an agenda. So right. why is it that leaders of the organized labor movement are recommending Damari Smith? Who is, you know, I don't, maybe he's good, maybe he's not. I have no, you know, but he's a nobody, right, among the national, on the national political scene. So why is it that they're throwing his name out there when there is Julie Sue, who is well-established, and also Sarah Nelson, the president of a large union? That's strange. Senator Bernie Sanders also endorsed Nelson for the job, describing her in a recent letter to Biden as, quote, a leading voice for worker rights. And that kind of brings me me to the discussion about this and some of my thoughts about it and it's interesting seeing where people fall and it seemed to me that the people who are politics first are really all about Sarah Nelson as labor secretary and the people who are more unions first are a bit more hesitant about it. And so I think that's that's an interesting kind of divide there, which is not to say that the people who are politics first are bad. You know, I, I have good feelings for Bernie Sanders. I don't you know, he's he's good. He, and but he's definitely a politics first guy, even if he's like the best labor person in the Senate. He's still a politics first guy um, at Mehdi Hassan is another person that was like, oh, this would be really great for Biden. And in a stunning way, Yulene New from New York, obsessed with Sarah Nelson. Uh, good choices. Not even sure how others can come close. So where you have and then you have other people who are definitely I would consider them more labor first, like Harvey J.K., saying, I love the talk of POTUS appointing my friend uh, Sarah Nelson as Secretary of Labor, but I think it would be a great waste of Democratic talent. We need Sarah Nelson in the labor movement, not the cabinet. If anything, we should have elected her to AFL-CIO president. Uh, Tovarish, who is a union uh, organizer, on, and, and that's the name of her Twitter account, saying, becoming Secretary of Labor in 2023 is the definition of having access instead of power. I'd rather have Sarah Nelson where she is, a role where she can help mobilize strikes that have demonstrated that have the demonstrated power to force the hands of bosses and politicians. I'm inclined to uh, fall along those last two that yeah. you, you um, just read, Harvey and uh, Tavara. Sorry, I can't pronounce that. Tovarish, yeah. Tovarish. Uh, that, that's how uh, I would pronounce it anyway. And Honda Wang, uh, DSA Labor Committee, says much the same thing. Do you really want Sarah Nelson's boss to be Joe Biden and have to carry out his weak agenda? Or would you rather her retain an independent agitational voice with leverage over the Biden administration or even lead the entire AFL-CIO at some point? Dave Jameson, labor reporter for the Huffington Post, says, hot take, there's actually not much Sarah Nelson could do for the labor movement as labor secretary, aside from use the bully pulpit and maybe reform OLMS, uh, the Office of labor and management services and that's you know that's i and and these are two again two people that are really i think labor first as opposed to being 
politics first. Yeah, I, I'm inclined to believe, you know, to, to agree with what Dave's saying. And that's with the caveat that we could do much better than what we've had. Right. Right. Marty Walsh could have done so much more for the labor movement during his time as secretary were he so inclined, even if that would have been primarily through the bully pulpit. Uh, but that's not nothing. Right. If Marty Walsh had come to Brookwood, Alabama, mm -hmm. that would have been nice. Right. If anyone from their administration gave a damn and even mentioned the strike in Brookwood, Alabama, that would have been nice. Right. Would it have changed the, the stakes? I don't know. Uh, more than likely, it wouldn't have. I, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, but we'll never know because the administration mm -hmm. never tried. Right. Uh, so I'm inclined to agree with Dave. And, and I, sec yeah, I second those comments from, from Honda Wang, Dave Jamison, uh, Harvey JK. I think that Sarah Nelson could be a bigger asset, is a bigger asset mm -hmm. outside the administration than inside of it. And I like what uh, what someone said about that's the definition of having access instead of power, because I, right. I do think that, you know, you get a real militant person in there. Well, I take it from me, hell, as a militant person who tried the staff approach, um, let me just say, <laughs> Sarah Nelson would find herself very, very <clears throat> frustrated right. immediately <laughs> and uh, hampered every step of the way mm. um, I f would find it hard to believe that she would have much authority uh, much ability to really go out and do her own thing like you know maybe I'm wrong but you know maybe you know and one of the things that's that we'll probably never find out is you know like did Marty Walsh actually want to do more for the coal miners right and he wasn't allowed to by his administration or, you know, just none of them give a shit. Uh, but, you know, theoretically, you know, someone like Sarah Nelson, we would anticipate would care. She certainly has cared about the she's, coal miner she struggle. Spoke, she's, she's, she spoke here in Alabama. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was there, uh, you know, one of the times that you and I reported on the rally, one of the mm -hmm. rallies there. So, you know, theoretically, I could see mm -hmm. her using that bully pulpit, traveling to, to struggles across the country. And, you know, maybe that could be a, a boost. But I'm inclined to, to agree that she's better off staying out of that administration. And I do think, take, you know, being the head of the AFL-CIO, that's different. Uh, and I would be, I think I would be supportive of that. I, I can't think of anyone else that would be, you know, in serious contention for that position that I think would be a better fit. Um, you know, we'll see, we'll see how things play out there, but I, I agree. Sarah Nelson, uh, I respect her leadership and I respect what she's done for the labor movement. I respect Bernie Sanders for his commendation of her and like mm -hmm. recommendation of her. I, I mean, you know, I guess that's kind of what you want. You right. want the most pro-labor folks in Congress to recommend the most pro-labor folks mm -hmm. to be the labor secretary. But right. that doesn't mean on a practical standpoint that it's going to work out 
the best way we want it to. So and, uh, we'll, we'll see if Julie Sue is a competent administrator and, you know, willing to use the bully pulpit, willing I, I would to do hope. like virtually anything. Right. It would be a step in the right direction compared to what we've had, because I personally, you know, no disrespect to the folks out here who are big Marty Walsh fans, uh, you know, but I was not impressed whatsoever. And uh, frankly, I'm a little salty. He didn't even respond to any of my emails and letters. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. Maybe that's me being petty, but damn, dude, uh, you know. I don't think it's a lot to to ask for government officials to respond to correspondence. And, you know, I wrote him multiple times in, in about what was happening here in Alabama and didn't even get, you know, a form email. Right. David Dayen, uh, editor-in-chief of the American Prospect, actually throws another wrinkle into the consideration of Sarah Nelson being uh, Labor Secretary. He said, Sarah Nelson is being vetted for a cabinet position. For what it's worth, the administration has a whole-of-government approach to fighting corporate con- concentration, and her union just endorsed the JetBlue spirit merger, which is interesting. And then he links to a press release titled, AFA-CWA adds full support to JetBlue Spirit Airlines merger after securing immediate improvements and protections post-merger. And uh, in the statement, uh, Sarah Nelson is actually quoted saying, after securing improvements and protections for Spirit flight attendants in recent days, we are excited to announce our strong support for the JetBlue Spirit merger. Sarah Nelson, president of the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA, representing 50,000 flight attendants at 19 airlines. Our union has experience with eight mergers in the past 10 years. We agree with skeptics skeptics that consolidation has accrued extraordinary power to a few airlines. However, this merger will help to correct that. The JetBlue Spirit merger adds competition to the airline industry that creates more power for workers along with choice and comfort that benefits consumers. We urge regulators to work diligently to ensure the financial merger closing occurs in the near term so that flight attendants, other workers, and consumers can access the benefits of the merger as soon as possible. Hmm. So that's, I don't know, maybe she's right, but that's not exactly the the tone that you want to have in a <clears throat> in a administration that seeks to be more trust busty. Yeah, well, I mean, there's posturing towards trust busting, and then there's actually doing it. Yeah, and and so I'll say that. But also, you know, I think it's my understanding that CWA has taken a similar approach with the Microsoft Activision Blizzard merger, mm. uh, and I think the calculation is basically. Yes, it's bad that Microsoft is expanding their monopoly, but this particular monopoly seems uh, a little more willing to play ball with us and uh, not be as viciously anti-union as their competitors. And so if we can, you know, uh, sign off on this merger and get some concessions in exchange, maybe it's worth it for the greater good. You know... I'm like you. I, I can't say for certain whether or not that's the case. You know, uh, I'm certainly skeptical. I'm skeptical. I also understand sometimes in the day-to-day grind, as unions, you have to try to make the best of the situation for your members right then and there. And, you know, maybe, maybe, I don't know, but maybe that means in certain cases dealing with the consequences of more corporate consolidation if it does, in fact, 
lessen the blow for your workers or even positively impact your, your worker members. So I get it. It's a complicated thing. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, they're trying to make the best of these situations because there's so many layers to this problem. And the union, you know, individual unions representing their own bargaining units can't undo decades of consolidation, right? We, as individual unions, we alone are not going to be able to tackle the dominance of monopolies in this economy. Uh, you know, so posturing aside, I, I don't see, you know, a super aggressive <laughs> approach from the Biden administration. I mean, they've made some positive, you know, tracks, but all in all, this isn't... Um, this isn't going back to progressive era trust busting. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot to think about there. Um, and, you know, there will be critiques folks will find of any of these folks that are put up. Uh, you know, feel free to send them to us. Uh, if you have thoughts about who should be the next labor secretary or, you know, who should not be the next <laughs> labor secretary. I know at one point there was someone from <clears throat> Pelosi world uh that some folks were pushing mm. that seems to have died down a little bit um but uh you know that's always that's always a risk too i mean let's not right. forget supposedly hillary clinton hi, had howard schultz right. tapped to be her labor secretary just had she having won. a boss as a labor secretary that's just insane well, I mean it's like we we talked about with marty walsh taking the nhl pa position in large part due to his close connections with NHL owners. Mm. So I'm going to go represent the players while being buddy-buddy with their bosses yeah. who profit off their labor. No doesn't, good. you know, doesn't set well with me um, as a unionist. It just really doesn't. And so that's something I think is important for all union members to keep in mind is, you know, what are the relationships of folks at the top? Mm-hmm. And, you know, are they still with the rank and file? Um, next story before we go to the labor history stuff. On Thursday, U.S. District Judge Mark Goldsmith, an Obama appointee, reversed his decision to issue a nationwide cease and desist order that would have prohibited Starbucks from discharging employees that participate in protected union activities. Um, the judge cited unspecified quote-unquote errors in his decision to reverse his order and in the new order said that the nlrb actually failed to show that starbucks has implemented a corporate-wide anti-union policy such that a cease and desist order should apply to every starbucks location in the country mm. and how can you say that you don't even have to have the NLRB show you that? You can just look at the news. Anytime there's a union campaign, you can see them illegally retaliating against their employees. How this is just the most insane thing. Uh really, really, really absurd. I don't know how you can say this. Um it sounds like it some would, lawyer weaseling. Yeah. 
it would be nice if he showed us the errors instead of just saying there were unspecified errors in his previous ruling. Well, show us what errors you're talking about because you previously agreed with the NLRB. You previously agreed with the NLRB to such an extent that you issued, you, you know, Judge Mark Goldsmith issued a nationwide cease and desist order, something that hasn't been done in decades. You know, the idea that this guy just, oh, well, you know, whoopsie doopsie, I'm throwing out this nationwide, this unprecedented activity. You are convinced to take an unprecedented level of action against Starbucks reasonably, rightfully, I think, in my opinion, and I think, frankly, objectively, that's the right thing to do because we can see how the retaliation has affected the union campaign. It's a clear pattern. It, it is a clear pattern of law-breaking. Right. Intentional. Intentional and obvious and absurd. Uh, it's just, how, how do you come to this conclusion? And so instead, the new injunction specifically prohibits only the Starbucks store in Ann Arbor, Michigan from firing employees who attempt to unionize. It's crazy. An abrupt reversal. Uh, yeah, I would absolutely say so. I mean, I, you know, when you told me this, I couldn't help but think about The Godfather mm. and the classic scene where <laughs> the guy wakes up and his prized horse's head is in the bed with him. Mm. He, get, he got the memo. He changed right. his mind. Right. I'm yeah. not saying anybody's done anything to uh, U.S. District Judge Mark Goldsmith, but boy, he sure did have an abrupt reversal. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's who's one been thing. in his ear. I don't know if he, you know, does feel legitimately pressured, threatened. I don't know what, you know. But it's like you said, so he weird. made a he made a huge, right. huge decision, and felt confident enough to take that huge decision, knowing what a big deal mm -hmm. it was going to be, and like knowing this is going to get a lot of attention, a lot of eyes are going to be on this. Right. And if I'm a U.S. district judge and I'm about to issue a ruling that's going to be pretty groundbreaking. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to think long and hard about it. Mm -hmm. I would anticipate what the opposition would be. Right. And I mean, he had to have known this was not going to go over well with corporate America. Right. Uh, and of course, Starbucks specifically, but, you know, more broadly, corporate America. So I don't know. I mean. I don't know. I, I mean, we might need to check on Judge Goldsmith. <laughs> we might need to check on him. Yeah, where are his uh, kids? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe they're holding his dog hostage or something. Um, frankly, yeah. given given the clear pattern of intentional law-breaking by Starbucks, there's very little you could tell me that would surprise me. Right. About well, the conduct or misconduct they may or may not have committed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, frankly, that. you know, you've got to, like, people need to start going to jail for stuff like this. If we're going to be a society that jails people, that throws humans in cages, we, the people like this should be going to jail. Uh, you know, the people who are orchestrating nationwide anti-union campaigns that are running afoul of the law, people that are, uh, you know, hiring children. To work in dangerous work environments uh, for 12 hours a day. You know, people, these people, the, these people need to go to jail. Yeah, I mean, we've said it before, but, you know, Citizens United under the Supreme Court declared corporations as people for the purposes of political contributions. But, but for nothing else. But for nothing else, right? You know, people 
are locked up. Mm-hmm. People are given death sentences. Right. But companies, there's no equivalent punishment to companies that egregiously violate the law, intentionally violate the law. They know that violating the law is just one of many costs of doing business the way they want to do business. And they can easily, you know, accommodate these measly fines. Okay, we got to, you know, we got to post a letter up in the break room. We got to bring that one person back. Then we make their life hell until they Mm -hmm. quit. You know, it's just... It's it's such an uh, an unlevel playing field, and so I know that it's easy for us as union folks to get dispirited and get disenchanted, and especially when we see the statistics of of the decline in union membership. But it, it's also remarkable how many folks are organizing mm-hmm. and are unionizing in spite of these odds and in spite of. Uh, you know, the tremendous inequity in our legal system. Yeah. So I, I just want to send uh, solidarity to all of the workers at Starbucks. You guys have really, you know, lit a fire in the labor movement and in the working class in America. Really, I, I, I think the Starbucks union drive has been huge. There are folks who don't pay attention at all to unions, don't even pay attention to politics, who know about this. <clears throat> right. Um, and I think that's big. So... Uh, shout out to Birmingham Starbucks. Shout out to our sisters and brothers over in Scottsboro. Uh, just keep it up. And, uh, yeah, somebody go check on Judge Goldsmith and his family and make sure everybody's yeah. okay. So, Adam, what happened uh, in February in labor history? All right. We're going we're gonna to wrap it up today with a little bit of history. It's time to share some February anniversaries in labor history and the long fight for justice. I compiled this information primarily from the 2022-23 edition of Planning to Change the World, a plan book for social justice educators. It's an excellent planner. It's published by the Education for Liberation Network, and I want to make sure I give them full credit. Definitely check it out if you are a parent or a teacher or if you just you want a cool planner uh, to give you a little inspiration each day as you jot down your appointments. I uh, also want to shout out the Zen Education Project. Another great resource, another great resource for educators as well. But they have uh, This Day in History posts. Uh, they have a little section on their website where you can find This Day in History. Uh, they also do regular hashtag TDIH posts on their social media channels. So um, that's another way to get good anniversaries uh, and events happening on any particular day. So February 1st, of course, was the first day of African American History Month. Since 1976, February has been designated African American or Black History Month, with the idea dating back to 1915 with the establishment of the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. Headed by historian Carter Woodson and Pastor Jesse E. Moreland, the organization sponsored the first Negro History Week in 1926 with the goal of celebrating the contributions of black people to American history, society, and culture. And sadly, while we've made real progress in the history field when it comes to black history, there are politicians in Montgomery and across the country who implicitly, and in some cases explicitly, oppose the right to celebrate Black History Month in public schools. Unraveling centuries-old layers of white supremacist propaganda and myth is an essential task to understanding our past, present, 
and future. February 1st is also the 120th anniversary of the publication of The Story of My Life, the autobiography of Helen Keller. Helen Keller lost her vision and hearing as a young child. Through hard work and the determination of her devoted teacher, Ann Sullivan, Keller learned to read, write, and speak, becoming the first deaf-blind person to earn a university degree in the United States. She was an ardent advocate for the rights of the disabled, writing several books and giving lectures worldwide, demanding access and opportunities for the disabled, particularly the blind and the deaf. But Helen Keller was also a champion of labor, motivated in part by her disability rights activism and her militant politics and active role in key social movements of the early 20th century is often left out of the conventional narrative around her life. She has a uh, quite the radical story that, you know, frequently is left out uh, when Helen Keller is brought up in pop culture. And finally, I didn't want to spend too much time on this part of it, but I've been told, allegedly, there are young people today who believe Helen Keller was not real or that her accomplishments are a myth, right? That she didn't actually write those books. And y'all, I mean... Listen, there's, there's a line between healthy skepticism of the dominant narratives and a completely bonkers rejection of factual reality. And clearly some folks have crossed that line. To the extent such a phenomena in similar ones exist, it only reaffirms for me the importance of high-quality social studies education for all young people. February 4th is the birthday of civil rights activist Rosa Parks, who lived from 1913 to 2005. Parks, of course, became an international icon of resistance to racial segregation in large part due to her role in launching the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955. But Parks was a social justice activist long before the incident, having served as secretary of the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP for more than a decade earlier. Thankfully, more folks have begun to recognize that she was an organizer, not just some accidental actor, as some of the tropes have suggested. February 5th was the 30th anniversary of the Family and Medical Leave Act. The FMLA was passed to provide workers up to 12 weeks of job-protected but unpaid leave for medical or family reasons. The law is gender-neutral and aims to protect women from gender-based discrimination in the workplace. The U.S. is by far the worst in the developed world in regards to leave time, with no mandated paid leave which disproportionately hurts people in low-paying jobs. While it is important to know your rights under FMLA, and I hope you all do, and I hope you exercise them appropriately, it's also important to know just how far it falls short in meeting the needs of the American working class. February 11th is the 120th anniversary of the Japanese-Mexican Labor Association. Japanese and Mexican workers united to protest labor exploitation in Oxnard, California. They were paid less than they had been promised and were forced to subcontract through a company rather than receive direct wages. The union would go on to win the Oxnard Sugar Beet Workers' Strike against these landowners. Really a remarkable demonstration of the power working people have when we unite across race, ethnicity, national origin, and the other barriers that divide us. 
February 12th was the 230th anniversary of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. The law was intended to enforce the Constitution's acceptance of the enslavement of black people in the United States. Like the Constitution itself, it, the act does not use the word slave, but rather, quote, persons escaping from the service of their masters. The law authorized the arrest, search, and seizure of fugitives and fined any person who aided an escaped enslaved person $500. $500 in 1793. You cannot tell the story or this history of labor in America without the history of slave and unfree labor. February 12, 1968 was the sanitation worker strike in Memphis. African-American sanitation workers Echo Cole and Robert Walker were crushed to death on February 1, 1968, when the rain triggered the trash trucks compactor in Memphis, Tennessee. Their deaths, along with the racist treatment of the sanitation workers, led to... Oh, sorry about that. Uh, their deaths, along with the racist treatment of the sanitation workers, led more than 1,100 workers to strike for better wages, conditions, and safety... On February 12th, in late March, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came to Memphis to march with the sanitation workers. It was while there that King was assassinated outside his motel room the evening of April 4th, 1968, one year to the date after his speech against the Vietnam War at Riverside Church. The 12th was also the birthday of Abraham Lincoln, you may have heard. Much has been said and written about Lincoln and his legacy. Rather than dive into any of those debates, I thought I would leave you with this very important Lincoln quote about working people. Quote, Labor is prior to and independent of capital. Capital is only the fruit of labor and could never have existed if labor had not first existed. Labor is superior to capital and deserves much the higher consideration. Food for thought there. February 13th is the 110th anniversary of Mother Jones's arrest. At age 84, the workers' rights activist Mother Jones was arrested in Charleston, West Virginia for inciting a riot and conspiracy to commit murder under the martial law that had been imposed to suppress a coal miner strike. She was court-martialed and sentenced to 20 years, but was released and pardoned by the governor after 85 days. Following her release, she testified before Congress on the abysmal working conditions in the coal industry. And if she were around today, I have no doubt she would be in Brookwood, Alabama, loudly declaring that warrior Met Cole has no soul. In the memory of Mother Jones, solidarity with all of our UMWA brothers and sisters who have held the line in Alabama's longest-running strike, may you win the contract you truly deserve. February 15th is the 20th anniversary of record-setting global anti-war protests. Coordinated protests opposing the then-imminent Iraq War took place in nearly 800 cities all over the world on the weekend of February 15th through 16th, 2003. The Guinness Book of World Records said between 12 to 14 million people came out that day, the largest protest in the history of the world. Now, the New York Times called the mass mobilization that had isolated the U.S. and the U.K. in their quest for buy-in as, quote, the second superpower. I find that an interesting quote. 
If only it had really been the case, right? I do remember seeing the demonstrations on TV as a kid, and of course, the general consensus in my world here in North Alabama was that uh, these were ungrateful, anti-American foreigners abroad and traitorous, dirty hippies at home. Of course, within a few years, even many of those displaying that ignorance about the protests were themselves opposed to the war. I also distinctly remember, and the record reflects, that despite this unprecedented global protest, the Bush administration, the Blair administration, and their allies proceeded with their dirty little war. In the 20 years since, we've seen some other huge demonstrations as well, but as this goes to show, simply mobilizing masses into the streets for limited protests is not necessarily enough to deter those in power. February 22nd is the 80th anniversary of the execution of White Rose members. During the Nazi Germany era, a group called White Rose, made up primarily of youth at the University of Munich, condemned the actions of the Nazis and called their fellow Germans to action. Members of White Rose were arrested for their nonviolent resistance to Hitler and Nazism, which included creating and distributing pamphlets. Sophie Scholl was just one member of the White Rose group, who was executed at the age of 21 for her Nazi resistance work. Facing History and Ourselves has a resource called Protests in Germany, which is worth checking out if you want to dive deeper, especially for those of you who are teachers or students. Uh, but I believe it's a very undertold part of our history when we look at Nazi Germany that there were, in fact, folks who resisted that disgusting regime from the beginning and, and through its end. February 23rd is the 260th anniversary of the Berbice Slave Rebellion. Berbice was a Dutch colony in what is today Guyana. Enslaved people were tortured by the small white minority, overworked, underfed, regularly exposed to disease and sexual violence. In February 1763, the enslaved peoples on four plantations rose up, killed Europeans, set fires, and took over stores of food and ammunition. The revolt spread to other plantations over the coming weeks and lasted for more than a year. Ultimately, the rebellion ended in failure, but I know there's a fairly new book out called Blood on the River, a chronicle of mutiny and freedom on the wild coast by Marjolaine Cars, that argues that the revolt came amazingly close to succeeding. February 27th was the 80th anniversary of the Rosenstrasse protest. Jewish men working at forced labor factories in Berlin were rounded up to be sent to the concentration camps. But their non-Jewish wives, as well as other folks, gathered at the welfare office on Rosenstrasse, where they were being held. This was, to my knowledge, the only mass public nonviolent protest by Germans in Germany of the deportation of Jews, and it was ultimately successful with the government backing down. February 27th is also the 50th anniversary of AIM, the American Indian Movement, occupying the site of the Wounded Knee Massacre to protest the federal government's policies toward Native Americans. And yet here we are in the year 2023, and Leonard Peltier is still in prison. It's a shame. And finally, while not an even-numbered anniversary, I did want to mention the Flint sit-down strike. 
It was February 11, 1936, when the sit-down strike at General Motors in Flint, Michigan came to a successful close, having started several weeks back on December 30, 1935. Unlike a conventional strike, where union members leave the plant and set up a picket line to discourage other workers from entering to prevent the employer from operating, these workers physically occupied the plant. The strikers were able to prevail, even when cops attempted to retake the building on January 11th with the so-called Battle of the Running Bulls. Ultimately, the strike ended with GM recognizing the United Auto Workers alongside other wins. Through the hard work of activism, organizing, sacrifice, and solidarity, these workers helped secure a union and a dignified quality of life for generations of working people. These historic wins have been diminished, and the UAW has been in retreat. It's up to all of us as members of the working class to reclaim the spirit of the sit-down strikers to win the better world that is not only possible, but necessary. So that's it for February Labor History Anniversaries. Appreciate you listening. Please make sure, if you're not already subscribed to our channels, hit that subscribe button. Uh, don't forget about our February fundraiser, which you can contribute to at tvlr.fm slash expand. Uh, thanks again for your time and for all of your support. Solidarity, y'all. See you next week. <laughs>